on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter had a huge stage because the Holy Spirit had done some incredible stuff to get people's attention. And then the Holy Spirit directed their attention to the words of Peter. So Peter had every ear tuned in to whatever he was about to say. So what do you say in that moment when you have the most influential of stages at the early point in the Christian movement? Uh, Peter had some stories he could tell. Like way bigger stories than I could tell. In his experience with Jesus on earth, he could tell about walking on water. And that'd probably keep their attention. Or he could tell about the recent experience he had of chopping someone's ear off and having Jesus put it back on. And he had options of what to say. So I want you just to imagine you're in Peter's situation. If you had the chance to share a message that had big influence, just to put it in, in our modern day, imagine, just imagine that you were called up by the NFL and they said, hey, we want you to give the halftime show. You can say anything you want. So you have all these millions of people watching. What message? I mean, we have so many important messages about God. Do you talk about God's love for us? Do you talk about the second coming? Do you talk about the Sabbath? What do you say? So if you're comfortable talking during the sermon, turn to someone and tell them what message you would share. If you're not comfortable, just sit there and, and look straight forward. What message would you share if you had the biggest of stages? Take a minute. So we have a lot of people not comfortable talking during the sermon. I can always get a young person to share. Is there a young person who thinks they know what message they want to share that wants to raise their hand? What would you share? If you were given everybody's ears, like you could with this microphone right here, what would you share? All right, Darian, let me, let me come to you. <laughs> See, maybe if you had everyone's ears, you'd get nervous. Maybe Peter got nervous. What would you say, Darian? Would you tell about God's love? You tell about God's love? Yeah. What, would you tell a certain Bible story? What, what story? No. no. You think Peter got nervous? He had a bunch of people listening to him. Anyone else know what they would share if they got the biggest stage possible? Do any of my girls know what they'd share? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. There's a million ways we might share it, but that's, that's the big thing. The love of Christ. Well, here's what Peter shared. Actually, you just heard it read for us. Thank you so much, Callie, for reading that. But when Peter got the biggest of stages, he gave the most essential message. It might not have been the most entertaining message or the craziest story, but he gave the most essential message. And after a quite lengthy quotation of the prophet Joel because he wanted to explain what was happening with the Holy Spirit and the things they had seen. So after a quite lengthy quotation, he began his message in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and this is the most essential message for the biggest of stages. Of all the things Peter could have said, he said, and this is the second time you're hearing it today, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So on the biggest of stages, a huge impact for the early church, this day of Pentecost, Peter says, here's what you need to know. Jesus lived, and he died, and he rose. And if you've been around church a long time, you might say, oh, he could have said something more entertaining. That's kind of boring. We all know that. But Peter was sharing the essential pieces. We need to know that this Jesus came to earth and lived, and he died and he rose. And that is what our fundamental belief number nine is. It is the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So we're going to look at those three things, three points to the sermon, life, death, resurrection of Christ. And what we're going to look at is mostly why those things are needed. So in our fundamental beliefs, it says... You heard it in the video. It says that these things, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, provide the only means of atonement for human sin. That means there's no other way that the sin problem can be solved other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's, there's no other way to go to heaven. There's no other way to live for eternity other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Makes these things majorly important. It also says in our fundamental belief, if you keep reading, that those things are given for eternal life and another thing, that by them the whole creation may better understand the infinite and holy love of the Creator. So as we go through these three things, we're going to focus on why they're necessary, but we're also going to be reminded at how they display God's character of love. He was loving us when he came and lived. He was loving us when he died. He was loving us when he rose. So let's go first to his life. And I think we might spend most time on his life. Life, death, and resurrection. Why was his life needed? Well, Peter began his sermon, his message, by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He wanted them to know this Jesus was a man. In fact, he says, not only was he a man, but you saw his mighty works. So there were things you actually saw. And he was in your midst. He was among you. And it was, this sermon was given just 10 days after Jesus left earth, right? So we had the, the days he was here, and then he ascended on the 40th day, and then the 50th day is Pentecost. So just 10 days. So many of these people had seen him like two weeks ago. Or they'd heard about his stories. So fresh in their mind was the fact that this Jesus was a man. But still, Peter did not want anyone to miss the humanity of the Savior. And the devil has attacked that. Right away, the early church messed that up. Ever since Christ came, the church has been arguing over about the nature of Christ. Fully divine, fully man, but just how divine and just how much man... But it might be surprising that the, the early church wrestled mostly with his humanity. There's a teaching called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo that we get doctrine from. And it, it means I think, but it also means to seem. To seem. And the teaching docetism taught that Christ only seemed to have a physical body. Like you saw him, but it was only 
an illusion. He just seemed to have a physical body. And you might be familiar with um, the, the teachings of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had a strong influence on the early church and pagan philosophy. And Gnosticism has a, uh, you can't really define it because there's a whole bunch of different types, but at the core of it, there's a secret gnosis or knowledge. And we have to get that secret knowledge to escape this material world because the material world is just bad stuff. And salvation is escaping the body, the material world. So that's kind of what Gnosticism is. The body is bad, the spirit is good. So in a world that was heavily influenced by Gnostic thinking, then those who converted to Christianity, they just thought it was totally incompatible with God to take on a body. Like, here's the holy God, and he's going to degrade himself to take on flesh, because flesh was evil. In fact, the Gnostics even taught there was two gods. One was the holy God, the good God, and the other was the creator of this world, and he was evil. Because only an evil God would create material things. That was, that was how strongly these early first century people thought negatively about the flesh and the body. So to put God in a body was so offensive to that thought that they thought, you know, there was someone here, but that wasn't actually God. He wasn't fully man. When really, when we see the full picture, the fact that our God took on flesh, it does not degrade his, his nature. It speaks highly of his character, that he would come to us. So right away, the early church was struggling with the concept that the life of Christ was literal, historical stuff. We believe, back in fundamental belief number four about the Son, we affirm that Christ is forever truly God and also became truly man. He really lived. He slept and woke. Woke. He had a body. He got hungry. He got sore. He got tired. He had friends. He, he really came for us, incarnated in human flesh. And that tells us so much of the love of our God. He came to us, took on human form. And it's not just nice of him to do that. It's, it's really necessary. So a couple points. I have a bunch of Bible verses and I hesitate to do that because it makes my message confusing when I jump here and there. So if you can see these Bible verses as quick references, these are just quick references to help us get some biblical language behind these points. One of the reasons why his life is necessary is that we needed a perfect sacrifice to atone for human sin. He lived a life of the perfect sacrifice. So here are a few verses that give biblical language behind the truth that Christ's human life on earth was sinless or perfect. We see that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So that's what Peter says. Paul says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He knew no sin. He was perfect. Hebrews says, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right before that it says, we don't have a high priest who can't relate to us, but one who has been tempted in every way like we are. But he didn't sin. Later Hebrews says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So we could go all throughout the New Testament, and the claim is, this man who lived, he lived perfect. 
He did not, he's the one human being in the history of the world. He did not sin. And that, it, Hebrews says it's fitting, and it's fitting because we needed a lamb without blemish. Back in the Old Testament, the, the system for sacrifice was set up in a way that the sacrifice to atone for sin had to be perfect, without blemish. And Christ was, as Peter says, the lamb without blemish or spot. So he was perfect. And in being perfect, he became the source of our perfection. So we needed a perfect lamb. He was that perfect lamb. Not only did we need a sacrifice, we need perfection. You realize that righteousness is required for heaven. So don't hear this in legalistic terms, but it's true from Scripture. Righteousness is required for heaven. God did not change his law. God did not change his standard. He's not letting impurities into heaven. Righteousness is actually required. But the good news about the life of Christ is we have one such human who lived a perfect life to be the source of righteousness for every other one who accepts it. So Hebrews uses that word source. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The fact that righteousness is required is seen in 1 Corinthians, and you can read on to make this argument, but it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists all those who, different types of unrighteousness. That's not how it works. God doesn't let sin into heaven. But there's a source for righteousness, and it comes from one place. And it's not just the death and resurrection. It is the perfect life of Christ. And Romans, uh, the whole chapter is excellent. But just a, a piece from Romans 3 and 4, it says that Christ, the law was powerless to save us. So Christ did what the law could not do. It says, for he condemned sin in the flesh. You hear that word? Flesh? We didn't just have a God who condemned sin from the throne. We have a God who condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. There are righteous requirements for humans, and there's a human who came and lived perfect to be the source of our righteousness. Peter also says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy as I am holy. So I'm going to list a few more verses here, and what I want you to notice in these verses is the close association between our holiness and Christ's holiness. In fact, I haven't done it, but in my brief study, I think it's pretty true that any place you find Scripture calling you to be holy, read a few verses before it and a few verses after it, and you'll find a reference to Christ's holiness. They just come together. Every argument for us to be holy is in the context of the holiness of Christ. And right here, you shall be holy. Why? Because he's holy. There's a source of holiness and it's not me. I can be holy only when I'm connected with the source of holiness. And these other verses just say the same thing in different ways. And John, everyone who thus hope, hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I can be pure because he is pure. And then skipping a verse and going to verse 5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there's no sin. The only reason that sin can be taken away is that there's no sin in him. 
Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without blemish to God, so here's the perfect life of Christ, and then notice what it says about my purity. It says, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here we have a perfect life of Christ, and it was not just so he could relate to us. That's great. It was because the atonement requires a lamb without blemish. And the source of our righteousness is his perfection. There are two ways that we get righteousness. We call them justification and sanctification. So one of them is the righteousness that gets me to heaven, and that is the righteousness of Christ covering me. The righteousness that gets me to heaven is Christ's righteousness. The other is that concept in Scripture of growing in Christ where we become more like him. Our character becomes more like the character of Christ. And he's actually giving us holy thoughts where we used to have unholy thoughts. He's the source of that too. The only way I can have Christ-like thoughts and purity and grow in purity is because he lived a perfect life so he can be the source to give that to me. So there's a major, major caution at this point in the sermon. You ready to hear the caution? Christ's life of perfect obedience to God is not an example to prove to me that humans can be righteous on their own. It is a source by which I might receive the righteousness of Christ. I think that is big enough to say again. The perfect life of Christ is not an example for me to look at and say, see, humans can do it. It is the source by which I can say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to let his blood cover me to, be, to inherit the kingdom. And I also want to live a holy life. And there's only one way. It's depending on the righteousness of Christ being fed into my life. He's the source. He's the source. He is example, but not an example so I could say, I must be that on my own. He's the example to say there's a source and I need to tap into that source. Every single, every single pure thought that comes into my head comes from one source. And I want that source constantly supplying purity to me. So we can celebrate today that Christ lived because it's necessary for our atonement and every bit of his living in perfection was love to us. Just review the life of Christ. Think about his temptations and, and to celebrate his life and what it means to us today recognize that every time he resisted temptation, he was doing that for your salvation. When he told the devil, away with you, Satan, in the desert, he was doing that for your salvation. Because if he would have faltered in one point, he wouldn't be the perfect lamb to give you salvation. Every time he chose purity over lust, he was doing that for your salvation. Every time he chose honesty instead of a lie, he was doing that for your salvation. He was loving you in every right choice he made as a human on this earth. That makes me have such a deep gratitude for the life of Christ. When Peter stood up, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. And I just want to invite you to hear these words, like implore you like Peter, hear these words. What I'm reviewing today is so basic. If you've been in church, life, death, the resurrection of Christ, that there's a temptation in the pastor this week to say, this is nothing new, pastor. Don't talk about this. But I think we need to hear these words. I think there's life in this basic thing we've been taught since we were this, this high, because 
all throughout the week, we're hearing other words. All kinds of other things are bombarding us, and we just need to be reminded that Christ came and lived a life of purity and love for, for us so that we could live in him. We often talk about living for Christ. Before we can live for Christ, he lived for us. And it's all connected, life, death, resurrection. He can't resurrect without dying. He can't die without living. But it starts right here with a God who chose to take on human form and live. Now, if you want a really beautiful study on this, um, take this afternoon and open up the book of Desire of Ages. It's chapter 79. It's called It Is Finished. And I was just, uh, this morning, I listened to that while I made breakfast. And I thought, she stole my sermon! And she went through this, uh, she, she brought us back to last week, okay? Last week was the great controversy. And there's a line in that chapter that says, at the beginning of the great controversy, Satan made an attack on the law of God. Remember that? And Satan's attack was, your law is ridiculous and out of reach. No one can achieve what you're asking. So what Satan has done, and I think he's doing it very effectively to this day, is he's painted the law of God as something offensive, something against us, when really it is the transcript of his character. So it's something good, right? It's God's character. God's character can't be changed. The law can't be changed. So Satan was attacking the law of God, and his attack over and over again when he came to Job, and he says, hey, he only does this because you protect him. His attack over and over again is there is nobody who can actually keep your law. So God, rather than going around his law, met every requirement of the demands of Satan and fallen angels to show that his law could be kept in human form. And because that human lived for us, we can accept that purity and now live eternity enjoying God's law rather than being against God's law. We can't keep God's law because we were born in a nature of sin, but there's a cure for that. God's law is not against us. Jesus came and perfectly lived in obedience to God's law, and what it declares to the whole universe of fallen angels and unfallen angels is this law is good. This law is a beautiful way to live. It is not abusive. It is living in harmony with God. So Christ came to live in perfect obedience. I can't do it, but I can plug into the source. There's teaching, you might have referred to it as last generation theology, but there is this concept that the last generation needs to prove to the universe that humans can fully keep the law of God. Well, the good news is I don't have to do that because there was a human who already did that for me. I don't need to prove to the universe that I can keep God's law. I need to accept the one who perfectly kept God's law and live because he lived perfect. So I praise God for the life of Christ. He really lived on this earth. He really lived perfect. And he did that, not because it was easy, but because he had the, the joy set before him that his perfect life would give us eternal life. Praise God for the life of Jesus on earth. We also believe in the death of Jesus, and that gets a lot of attention because... That is pretty dramatic, that he'd go that far to die for us. So Peter stood on this big stage. They're listening to him. He says, here's this man, Jesus. You saw him. And then he says, this Jesus, this is Acts 2, 23, 
was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So Peter's brief summary of life, death, and resurrection says, He died, you did it, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was calculated by God for our redemption. It was not an accident. It was not a weakness like he was overpowered by humans and, and died. This was intentionally from God. It's not that God ever designed death. He never willed death. It's that in response to sin, whose wages are death, he said, I'll do it. I'll be the one to die so that those who don't who receive me, don't have to receive the second death. That's what it says in Revelation. In a couple places it says, those who take part in the first resurrection, that one happens when Jesus comes back, those who take part in the first resurrection, over such, the second death has no power. Because there's someone who died for us. So, uh, did you enjoy that video of all those people sharing the um, fundamental belief? It's much more engaging than me just reading it. So we recorded that this week, and every time we got to a certain line, everyone stumbled. Because there's four big words that talk about Christ's death in our fundamental beliefs. And it says that his death is substitutionary and expiatory and reconciling and forgiving. So we're going to think about each of those. His death is substitutionary. That means he died in our place. He was the substitute because my life, warranted death. My sin warranted death. So a few verses to remind us of the substitution of God. That he made him who knew no sin. Um, I'll start at the beginning. <laughs> For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Peter again. In himself, or he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. When it says, by his wounds we are healed, it's quoting Isaiah 53 that says that in beautiful poetic language. Um, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And uh, he was this lamb that was silent before the slaughter. He was doing that in our place. Bible makes it very clear his death was substitutionary. And the one who he was substituting for is me and you. His death is substitutionary. And we see this in Leviticus 16 when the priest would lay his hands on the goat and the sins of the people would transfer to a substitute. The goat would be the substitute. He would bear the sins, not his sins, but the sins of the people. He was substituting for us. Um, Corinthians says, For I delivered to you as of... Oh, I'm going on to the next one. Just hold that one there. So Christ's death was substitutionary. It was also expiatory. Anyone know what that word means? His death removed our guilt. Expiatory means that the atonement, the removal of guilt to make us acceptable, uh, that, that required cleansing. Not just um, forgetting about sin, but cleansing of sin. Well, I can't do that. So the death of Christ is expiatory. It removes my guilt. For if the blood of bulls, 
goats and bulls, and it continues on, sanctifies from the purification of the flesh. So earthly sacrifice brought purity. It says, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? There is a removal of guilt. And I love to think of it this way, that when he died, he died to have the right to remove the guilt of my sin. You ever struggle with shame? The devil telling you you're not good enough and you feeling like you're not good enough? Well, Christ died to have the universal right to remove the guilt of your sin. So if you're feeling the guilt of your sin and you're feeling under that shame, he actually has every right to take away the guilt of your shame because Christ's death is expiatory. It removes our guilt. It, it purifies our conscience before God. It also says in our fundamental belief that his death is reconciling, and we know what that means. It means bringing back together. We see that right there in Hebrews, that because of his death, we have confidence by the blood of Jesus to enter into the most holy place. The blood of Jesus brings us back into relationship with God because we were created for relationship with God. Sin separates. The death of Christ is reconciling. That's what it talks about in, in 2 Corinthians. It says that you were reconciled to God through Christ, and then you became ministers of reconciliation. His death is transforming. Oh, one more on reconciling. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's also transforming. So those were the four words. Substitutionary, expiatory, reconciling, and transforming. Uh, we are transformed in the most extreme ways. If you read Ephesians 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So that's where we were. The transformation is from dead to, it says in Ephesians, as you keep reading, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. So the transformation is extreme from spiritual death, death of Christ, as something transforming. Do you need transform today? So if the death of Christ has power to take from death to life, then it also has power to bring transformation somewhere inside of that extreme spectrum, like from discouragement to encouragement, from impurity to purity. Any negative thing you're experiencing this week, you're suppressed by some negative thing, the death of Christ is transforming for that thing. He transforms us. Now, we don't hit that mark every, we, we take our eyes off Christ, but when we, when we put ourselves in Christ, any negative thing can be transformed from dead in sin to alive in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 says you weren't just dead in sin. You were by nature objects of wrath. You can't get any more in need of transformation than that. The death of Christ is transforming. So once again, we look back and we see his love in these things. Uh, that's what John said. He said, this is how we know what love is. Like, the main example to the universe that shows us what love is, is that Christ died. In that chapter uh, 79 that I read this morning, uh, I was reminded that the universe didn't actually see the character of Satan until the cross. They, they saw him mess with people for 4,000 years of human history, but the unfallen angels could not believe that he would go to the extent to, to kill Jesus. 
to put God on a cross. So when they saw that, it was displayed before the whole universe that here's a God who's willing to go to this extent out of love, and here's a devil who claimed to have a better system who's actually going to kill the Son of God. We see the love of God in these things. So when he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, like he got to the point where he was sweating blood because of his death that was coming, he was dying for your salvation. And when he marched up to, to Calvary and carried the cross and couldn't bear it anymore and had to give it up, he was dying for your salvation. As he hung there, like his lungs are collapsing and he can't breathe, he was hanging there dying for your salvation. So we see in his life this ultimate intimate love toward us. He did that for us. We see in his death that, and we see in his resurrection the same. Peter comes to the point in the sermon where he says he died and he was buried and that he rose because it was impossible for the Holy One to see decay. The death of, the resurrection of Christ is a, is a, a big point in this because it validates the saving work of the death and the saving work of the life. Because if he doesn't rise, he's not triumphant, he's dead. So him coming out of that tomb, there's a lot hanging on him coming out of that tomb. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about resurrection. It talks about the resurrection of Christ, and then it talks about the resurrection at the end when, when we are resurrected, the first resurrection. And when he begins that, he writes, the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel I preached and the one you received. So he's reminding them of the accepted gospel. This is what I preached. This is what you received. And he said that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And he says, these things are of first importance. They are first importance. There it is. So he says that the resurrection of Christ is among those things of first importance. Then he continues. And later on in that chapter, he says, right before verse 20. So I think it's like uh, verse 12 through 20. He says there's a whole bunch of things that aren't true if Christ is not raised. So I'm going to summarize them for you. If Christ is actually not raised from the dead, here are the things that are true. Preaching is in vain. Faith is in vain. Christians are misrepresented by God. We are still in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, he's arguing from the negative. It is not true that Christ did not raise from the dead. So we can go back over this list and actually flip those around. Because Christ is alive, preaching is not in vain. Me standing up here and going a little over time is not in vain. It means that because Christ is alive, there's a living God who's speaking to your heart through me preaching right now. Praise God Christ is alive or else we'd have to do something else when we get together. We'd have to go, go find, play a volleyball game or something because preaching would be useless. But because Christ is alive, your faith is not in vain. That means when you're struggling with an issue, you got one. When you're struggling with that issue and you choose to trust Christ, I'm going to have faith in Christ. That decision is not in vain. Your decision to trust Christ in the hard thing this week is not a useless decision. Why? Because we have a living Savior. Christ rose from the dead. It says Christians are misrepresenting God. You are not misrepresenting God to be a Christian, to believe this stuff, to talk about this stuff. And there's one reason. 
because Jesus rose from the dead, so it is all true. We are, it says you are still in your sins. Well, if he's not alive, we're still in our sins, but he is alive, meaning we do not have to stay in our sins because Christ is alive. It says that those who have fallen asleep have perished. We all have someone that we're missing. There's somebody falling asleep in Jesus that your heart misses. If Christ did not raise from the dead, they're gone forever. But since Christ has raised from the dead, you're going to see that person. Like That is such good news for hurting hearts. We're going to see those people again. They have not perished forever. And it says we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, because he is alive, we're a triumphant bunch. We have, we got a good life. To live through the troubles of this life with the hope in a risen Savior is a good, encouraging, optimistic way to live. So our fundamental belief, number nine, says we, it says we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. It proclaims God's triumph over the forces of evil. And for those who accept the atonement, assures their final victory over sin and death. It declares the lordship of Jesus Christ before whom every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. Resurrection validates the whole thing. It's historical. He really rose. There's eyewitnesses and non-Christian testimony saying this man died and rose, and it punctuates every bit of hope we have. Our faith is not in vain because he's alive. But also, his resurrection guarantees ours. So the verse on the screen says that he was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is the first thing you get out of your garden. And if it's good, if you got a good carrot, you know there's more carrots coming. He's the first fruit guaranteeing that there's more harvest, and that harvest is us. We have hope in the resurrection. So his death guarantees a day when graves open up. If you and I aren't in our grave, we're going to see it happen. And we are going to meet the Lord together in the air. So our hope, and this is very uniquely, distinctly Adventist, and it is a wonderful truth. Our hope is not in the immortality of the soul. Our hope is in the resurrection of the body. We can cherish the truth that one day we are going to resurrect as our Savior resurrected. We rise because He rise. He's going to give us new, holy, imperishable, immortal bodies. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Our hope is in the re bodily resurrection of those who love Jesus. Isn't that an awesome hope to hold on to? It is not that my soul might escape into some better realm and, and get rid of this body. It is that he's going to come back and this body that's broken and decayed and not what he intended it to be will be made what he intended it to be. I celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we put those together and I don't know what it is that you needed to hear out of all that. Maybe you need to know that he lived for you, that he died for you. But our hope today, and it's stated so beautifully in our fundamental beliefs, is that every chapter of the great controversy his, in his life, death, and resurrection, it was overflowing with love and saving for us. We need a perfect Savior. We need a sacrificial Savior. We need a risen Savior. 
So if you've heard it a thousand times, receive it fresh today. And we're going to reflect on that with um, some music. And just make it a prayer time to receive the life, death, resurrection of Christ into your life.